Welcome to Outspoken, where we dive deep into the topics and intersection of technology, money, business, and passion. I'm your host, Shana Cosgrove. You have to have confidence. If you don't have confidence, you're never going to have charisma. You got to be confident in your abilities and confident in your own self-esteem. That's why I think I invest so much time in learning so that I will always have the confidence that I need. Without that confidence, you kind of lose it and people can sense that. I do think that there is a higher bar that you have to uh, demonstrate, which I'll take it, you know, bring it on because, you know, I've done the homework. So I was first in my class and top 10 of law school and I can take it. So I'll take it on. But I do think you have to work extra hard. General Nakasone spoke to the um, midshipmen at a particular event, and somebody asked him, what do you need to do to be a leader? And his answer was, read, read, read. I found that to be extremely powerful, that he was telling these youngsters, they were 18 and 19 and 20, that that's what you need to do. Diane Genesic Esquire is the chief of the National Cryptologic School at the National Security Agency. In that role, she oversees the delivery of unique offerings for the nation's civilian and military intelligence global workforce in the areas of SIGINT, network security, cyber resilience, and encryption. Diane has worked at both the Pentagon and the White House, managing hundreds of personnel and millions of dollars and resources. She has served in a variety of legal, policy, and executive management positions across the U.S. government. More recently, Diane has received a series of awards for her leadership in cybersecurity. Some of these awards include Cybersecurity Impact 2020 Award by the Washington Business Executive, Top 100 Women in Cyber for 2020, and 2020 Cyber Her Warrior Award. Diane is a Defense Intelligence Senior Executive. She is Certified Information Systems Security Professional, CISSP, and Defense Acquisition, DIWIA, Certified in Program Management. Diane is the Founder and Advisor of Women in Cybersecurity Mid-Atlantic. She is also a Senior Advisor to the WESIS Critical Infrastructure Community in the Capital Region. Diane serves on the White House's National Science and Technology Council, as a board member for the Federal Coordination of STEM and Education. She is also a board member of University of West Florida Center for Cybersecurity Advisory Board. Diane is a board member of the Cyber Education Program Advisory Board at College Park, Maryland. This podcast is sponsored by Nyla Technology Solutions, an SBA-certified 8A, hub-zone, woman-owned, small business, specializing in full-stack software engineering and data science services to the U.S. government. Our innovative solutions are built to match the speed of mission. For more information, partnering opportunities, and new job openings, please visit our website, www.nyla.io. Well, Diane Janosek, thank you so much for being here tonight at 6.30 p.m. on a Tuesday. I know it's a lot to ask, but you are such an inspiration and you give so much to the cyber community and particular the female cyber community. And for those of you who do not know Diane, 
One of her many awards that she's received in her professional career is 2019 Cyber Warrior Woman of the Year from the Cybersecurity Association of Maryland, which is a very concentrated and intense group. So I first met Diane at Dreamport at an event that they were having, and you were there with your daughter. Yep, it was a STEM fundraiser. Do you get that you're approachable? Do people tell you you're approachable? They do. I guess it depends if I'm in my work mode or not. <laughs> if I'm in my work mode, I'm intense. I guess if I'm not in my work mode, I'm approachable. I guess it depends on how focused I am. Given your background and your position, I was just expecting you to be really kind of scary and intimidating. And we had a lovely conversation and then we met again, I guess, in another casual setting. So each time it's been great to get to know you. That is funny because, you know, I'm a lawyer and I moved into you no know, law non-legal positions and management positions. And every once in a while, people would say, you're an attorney. <laughs> you don't. <laughs> You don't seem as like scary or as mean as some of them that I met. I can't imagine that you, you know. So, so I guess it just depends. Do you find that you don't fit people's stereotypes of different things that they're looking for? You don't fit the stereotype of a cybersecurity woman or you don't fit the stereotype of a lawyer or a government civilian. Are you getting the surprise from people a lot? All the time. Yes. They don't know what quite to think. They don't know if I'm, you know, I, I'm the same height as a fifth and sixth grader. So when I go to the <laughs> middle school camps, the little girls have bigger feet than I do. And I remember the secretary of the Air Force came in. I don't think she knew if I was one of the crowd or not. So I kind of just blend in. <laughs> How tall are you? I'm five feet. Yeah. Yeah. My mother was five feet. She married a man who was six feet tall with the hopes that her daughter's would be tall, but I'm the tallest at 5'4". I'm, I'm jealous at 5'4". I'm jealous. <laughs> Do you wear heels to work all the time? I did until just last year, especially uh, in the Pentagon and the White House. And I'm familiar with the old executive office building, but they have these, it's a marble floor, black and white tile, extremely slippery. I still wore those three inch high heels because I was intent on uh, looking taller than myself. Did you change into tennis shoes like on the way to the parking lot? I didn't. I was maybe too vain. I don't know. I <laughs> I finally gave up my heels when I couldn't keep up on the way to a meeting. That really annoyed me. I felt very like I liked my outfits, but I felt encumbered by not being able to walk because, as you said, these government buildings have these really long corridors. Sometimes you have to walk quite far to a meeting or to go meet with somebody and and I felt very restricted in my like pencil skirt and high heel shoes. I based my whole outfit on what shoes I was going to wear for the event, <laughs> depending upon how far I had to go. Or so everything mattered because you know, especially being a, a young lady with predominantly a male organization. So I dressed accordingly. I even worked on the Capitol Hill, and I think times have changed a little bit, you know, in terms of more comfortable shoes. But really, I was when I started. It sounds crazy. I was still ironing my slips. <laughs> <laughs> I love it so much. My mother ironed everything and uh, she always inspected us. I iron everything today too. Tell us a little bit about your day job and where you are today, how you went from law to now being in management and focused on cybersecurity. 
Well, yeah, thanks, uh, Shana, for having me. And you've had an impressive group of ladies ahead of me and uh, men ahead of me. So thank you for having me tonight. I do appreciate it very much. So I grew up in Canada. My family moved up there when I was about a year old. My father was a chemist. So I came back to the States, maybe eighth grade or so. And I had no idea what the social studies business was. I didn't even have social studies. <laughs> At least I didn't call it that in Canada anyway. And um, Ronald Reagan was president. And the teacher, Mrs. Warbiani, wanted me to read a paragraph in the middle of the class about President Reagan. And all I kept saying was President Reagan. I thought the teacher was <laughs> going to kill me. I didn't know a thing. So what was she thinking? So that got me interested in the... Uh, checks and balances in the government and how your the three branches of government are structured. And it was very different than what I was kind of exposed to. So I was interested in the government, kind of how things kind of fit together as the United States of America, this federated system that we had in terms of individual rights and all that. So that was pretty interesting to me, but I was very science focused as well. So I had top scores in science and math, but my identical twin sister and I were always at the top and she decided she was going to go on to medical school and go into the sciences. And I decided I was going to go into uh, political science with French and Russian. I since met twins and they've said that they felt complete because they had an interest in something else. But if the other twin did it, they felt like, okay, <laughs> at least one of us did it. I feel like I'm a pseudo doctor because all day long I ever hear about is all of her doctor stuffs and her medicine. And I know more about the medical field than probably anybody that's not a non-medical person. So I ended up going to um, college and then to law school. And I went to law school in Washington and I went through this little quarter inch binder that they had of job ads. And I applied to a position at the Department of Justice and I was selected to work under the attorney general, associate attorney general at the time. Isn't that like hitting the lotto? I mean, don't so many law students dream about getting a job like that? Yeah, you had to go through this book and find it and send the old fashioned, send your resume in and have a home phone number. And it really sounds kind of arcane thinking about it, but it really wasn't that long ago. And I got the interview. And when I went into the interview, it was under the whole civil litigation side. The person I was interviewing got a phone call about some Supreme Court Solicitor General thing and ended up spending most of the time on the phone. It wasn't even private. She didn't even shoo you out of the room. <laughs> no, I guess I was just some lowly, you know, law clerk wannabe. So I think that she felt bad that she took up the interview time on the Solicitor General call. And uh, she looked at my resume and said, well, yeah, you're well, you're obviously qualified and, you know, would you like to work here? So I ended up working under Janet Reno, who was the first female attorney general. So that was quite impressive. And I, I mentioned my height, right? I'm five feet tall. Yeah, she's very tall. So I was, I guess, on the seventh floor. She was on the eighth floor of the main justice building. So she would go work. She would work late at night. She would leave, you know, maybe around six o'clock. And I had law school at 630 and I would take the metro to class. So I would work you know, my full day and go jump on the Metro. And I was always so focused. You talked about being approachable. I was always so focused on doing my work and then getting to class. And I would often jump on the elevator, which was her elevator. And uh, <laughs> and eventually she would just stand there and just kind of smile and then wait for me to realize I was in the elevator with the attorney general of the United States. <laughs> it was so, so She would smile like, 
And she always wore flats, didn't she? She always wore flats. She was one tall lady. <laughs> it was just so funny. It was everyone was, you know, bowing. I mean, she, you know, she's attorney general. And um, I would just jump right in the elevator, think nothing of it. I've got my focusing on my clothes. You have your backpack on. I did. I like, <laughs> and it happened a number of times, but. You know, you're just so focused on you know, getting to where you have to go. So <laughs> she was actually a very nice lady and an intelligent lady. And I was very lucky. She oversaw the impeachment, right? Wasn't that one of her major efforts that she oversaw? It would have been under her watch. I ended up working in the White House during the Bill and Clinton impeachment process. Beginning to end, I was at the White House. I had switched from there to the courthouse. I worked for the federal courts worked for a federal judge, and then I was detailed over to the White House. I uh, worked for Chuck Ruff, who was the counsel to the White House. He was the one that did the defense of Bill Clinton. So I was actually in the White House for the entire impeachment process before it began to the end of it. But I was on the other side. So I was you know, literally you know, in the White House seeing that from the different perspective. So it was pretty interesting. It was an interesting time to see full circle. Yeah, I remember because I had just graduated college and the web browser was being finalized. It was going from Mosaic and the Washington Post had just gone online. I think it was one of the first digital newspapers, or at least from my perspective. And I remember reading the whole transcript of the congressional trial with Clinton and everything that happened. Yes, at work. (laughs) Oh, my God. I sat in Alexandria, Virginia. My house was right near the Pentagon. And I remember reading the whole thing. Oh, I still have the original newspaper uh, when it came out. But we were all looking at it, of course. I ended up doing some interesting political things, obviously. Worked for a number of political appointees. And I ended up working at the coming up to NSA How did they uh, attract you, right? You're in the heart of politics. You worked in the Justice Department. I worked at the Pentagon as well. So I was working in the White House and we were doing, we also did the um, political nominations. So as you know, it's it's very political. (laughs) Who gets nominated (laughs) to what and what positions are Senate confirmed and who's selected for what. And so one of my jobs was um, ethics reviews of these different candidates before they'd get submitted to the Senate, right? So you wouldn't want to submit a person that had some type of crazy scenario that made them disqualified for whatever position they were going into. So I was looking, my, I had a sister that lived in Columbia, Maryland, and she was able to babysit. So I wanted to get a job closer to her so she could help me with my um, small son who was quite young. So I said, oh, there's a federal agency up there. Well, I couldn't find anything how to apply. So I ended up, I looked in this book. I couldn't find anybody (laughs) because they didn't have any political appointees. (laughs) Now, of course, they do have a political appointee. It's But it's because it's a four-star. He's a political appointee, General Nakasone. But they didn't have any political appointees. They didn't even have the independent inspector general. So I looked down this name and I wrote a hardcover letter and mailed it in the old-fashioned way. Bob Dietz was the general counsel. He was very gracious. He said, come on up. And I remember I was rushing like crazy, getting up the parkway from the White House, trying to get there on time. And <laughs> so you took 295 at the time? I took 295 at the time. And I said, OK, I'll go to this job. And it took about five minutes. He looked at my resume and he goes, 
you're qualified. <laughs> oh, you're hired. Did you want the job? And I said, well, yes, that would be very nice. You know, thank you very much. <laughs> it was very old fashioned, you know, the way that it all happened. But I mean, I did earn it and I uh, did take the time to, as I said, with all these jobs, figure out who to go to, how to apply, how to make myself available and make myself skills known. Of course. And these are extremely competitive jobs that you got. And was this the first time you worked in the intelligence community? It was. And I was shocked because <laughs> the security between there and the Pentagon and the White House, I had, you know, firsthand experience. So it was an interesting experience to see how it all kind of came together. So I took a position when I became a senior executive to become the chief legal officer of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. And that was a fully constituted board at the time. It, when I started, it was a bipartisan two plus three, five-member board. One of the five members was Judge Wald, Patricia Wald. She uh, has since died. She received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Obama. She was the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit for 10 years and served another 10 years, so 20 years altogether in the D.C. Circuit. Quite an impressive lady. She retired and was a political appointee to this board, so I was able to serve underneath her. So I worked for her as well as David Medine, as well as Rachel Brand. Rachel Brand was number three. She became the associate attorney general under uh, President Trump and uh, two other individuals. So it was quite an elite group that I served as like the first, you know, general counsel of privacy. It was called the chief legal officer for at the time. And that was when the Snowden disclosures occurred two days after I started. Quite <laughs> I don't know if you're the cause or like you, like all these <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Being in a weird place at a weird time. I mean, you're literally part of history. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, was, I got a master's degree from the National Intelligence University and they put me on like their woman's history month. I said, oh my God, now I'm like an artifact. <laughs> like, I can't be that old that I'm on women's history. <laughs> you know, it's, sometimes it's the right place at the right time and preparation meets opportunity. Yeah, I got sworn into the Supreme Court by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You had to earn that, of course, you know, that's a whole process, but you know, as luck would have it, she was able to swear me in. And another moment in time of history where I was, timing does help. So that was pretty amazing opportunity that I've had to meet some you know, pretty impressive people. So what takes you from being focused on law towards leaning in towards cybersecurity? What is it that like becomes that passion for you to take the blend of the law and apply it to cybersecurity? Cybersecurity, you know, is a lot of information security. It's protecting the data, it's protecting equities, protecting interest, securing information, how you classify it, how you handle it, what's the most risky. So there is a lot of balancing of risks and understanding the different delicacies of where things are. So of how the systems of systems are set up and what needs to be done to properly ensure the greatest amount of protection. So when I was with the chief legal officer for the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, where we reported directly to President Obama, we did a report on Section 702 and a report on Section 215, the telecommunications arena, which permitted a collection of information. So I was very much involved with 
whether or not the proper procedures were in place to oh my God, handle yes. sensitive data. <laughs> oh my this was an uproar. This was a public uproar at the time. It was awful. It was seven days a week, and I tracked all the news inquiries, and we ran press conferences. We did open hearings. It was quite an amazing time. And you're not able to talk about this at the time with your family, your twin sister. Yeah, and they could see it on the news, and we weren't allowed to see anything. (laughs) Meanwhile, I was meeting with all the cast of characters, all the people you see in the news. I was meeting with all of them. You've dealt with all sorts of different people at super high levels. Do people have a similar energy at that level? Is it a confidence? Is it like the confidence begets them in that level? Like, what is it? Are you looking for more from your career than just a paycheck? At Nyla, we offer that and so much more. Join us for a career where your growth is our priority, with generous pay, unbeatable benefits, and a supportive environment that cheers on your every achievement. We're scouting for top-tier data scientists, software engineers ready for something bigger. Ready to be a part of a company that cares about where you're going? We're ready for you. Check us out at nylatechnologysolutions.com or drop us a line at hello at nyla.io. There's a certain charisma, right? It's whether or not you come into a room and you kind of command attention of the room. Some people get the command the attention just from nature of walking in, you know, and then you can kind of feel that sense of energy that kind of goes with them. So there's people that have an aura of a charisma that says, wow, you know, they just own it. Can anyone get charisma? Is it something you can change about yourself? Is it like throwing your shoulders back? I think it can be learned. I think you've got to take the time to learn it, though. You have to have confidence. If you don't have confidence, you're never going to have charisma. If you don't feel confident in who you are, if you don't, you know, you're not carrying yourself the right way, you're not going to have it. You got to be confident in your abilities and confident in your own self-esteem, confident in your intellectual capacity and your ability to articulate. That's why I think I invest so much time in learning so that I will always have the confidence that I need. Because if without that confidence, you kind of lose it and people can sense that. So even when I was in the White House, they said, what's the most important thing? We were talking at a cocktail hour or something and they said, the number one thing is you got to have confidence. And if you don't have it, you got to fake it because otherwise you're going to be eaten alive. So it is a learned behavior, even for an introvert. It's all about just knowing who you are, what you have to offer. And you're not going to compromise. And this is what I need. If you can be very confident in that approach of what you're looking for and when you need to pull that out and when you need to be uncompromising because your position is non-negotiable because you think the stakes are too high. That's where I think it's the challenging part for a woman. You know, I tell people I'm a nice person, but I'm not a pushover. I'm going to see through it or I'm going to tell you where I think the risks are and I'm not going to do something. So I think people do get a little bit conflicted. They're like, oh, she's... You know, with women, if they smile, oh, she she'll sign off on something. I don't, I don't just <laughs> sign off on things. So they get a, oh, it's got to go to Diane. Oh, you got to make sure it's okay. Let me just back up before I forgot to mention. I forgot to answer your following question. So, what happened was, when I got back to the agency, I was coming back for a meeting or something, and I, I ran into an amazing one of our former CIOs, and um, 
he said, hey, you know, when you're ready to come back, let me know. And Was this Lonnie? Yes. We had a mentor-protege agreement with FedData, or we have a mentor-protege agreement with FedData. Lonnie is very charismatic. He is an amazing leader. He has the ability to see people's talents, pull them out, the ability to connect people. He's a phenomenal person. So he saw me and said, hey, let me talk to you, you know, and he said, hey, you know, when you're ready, let me know. So I ended up heading up the technology security policy area, which actually aligned with my background just fine because I had been the chief privacy officer before and I had done data protection and classification and all that stuff. But the real thing that I learned that year and we had all of the ISSOs reporting there to underneath my organization. I was quite in awe of the skill set that was needed for network security and information security. I was in awe of the people that did the functions. And so that's when I went and uh, studied for the CISSP and got that because I felt I couldn't be an effective manager if I didn't understand what they were had to balance in terms of the risk management framework. If they were looking for an authority to operate an ATO, what the liens meant, how that came together. So then I got in through the cyber arena, through really the information security side, which a lot of people have in terms of the data protection. So then we also had the NISERT. We had a number of number of things going on in terms of different types of vulnerabilities assessments and globally and stuff like that. So it was the one of my best jobs, honestly. Really? That's awesome. Yeah. And I get the impression you studied for the CISSP in your free time. Is that true? <laughs> I did it on the weekend. I knew but- it. I knew it. <laughs> Are you reading all the time? Are you like a that robot in Five Alive where he's like got his fingers and reading. <laughs> I do read. I my, You should see my office where I am. I got lots of paper, but I needed a voucher, right? So I said, does anyone have a voucher? Well, someone had taken a boot camp and um, I didn't want to pay this $600 out of my pocket. I just wanted to take the test to make sure I could, you know, knew what I was doing. Someone said, well, I took the boot camp. I had a year to take it and I'm still not ready. You can use my, my voucher. Well, my voucher expires on February 28th. This was probably December 22nd. So I'm like, okay, I got two months to study. So I studied, you know, every weekend I got the books out of the library. I think I may have ordered just one book. (laughs) And um, it was quite an experience studying all the time on the weekends. Then I had to take the test. The only time I had to take the test was at two o'clock on a Friday. Of course, I had worked that whole week. I worked that whole morning. And they were like, they were like, where are you going? I'm going to take CSSP. I go, what are you talking about? It's a six-hour test. It's a Friday afternoon. And so I go to the study place, this place in Columbia, to take the test. And this is a for all the women out there that are, have the CSSP, kudos to you. I go to take the test, and there's a guy sitting there. And he says, what test are you here for? I said, CSSP. He goes, oh, okay. Have you taken it before? I said, no. Uh, did, you take a, did you take the boot camp? No. Okay, well, I just want to let you know, I have never had a female pass the test in this facility. Oh my God, he said that to you? He said, I have never had one female pass this test in this facility. So every time I went out to go to the restroom, I'd kind of just smile at him. (laughs) He was still there, you know, four and a half hours later, told me I passed. Honestly, that that got me started in the the cyber field. I haven't looked back and um, I have the highest amount of respect for people in the information security arena and the cyber operations arena and uh, just what they do to protect, you know, the digital networks that we operate on as Americans and just protecting intellectual property that exists across multiple networks across our country and now the impacts with the 
critical infrastructure sector. So it's a tall order, lots of patriots doing an amazing amount of work. So it's been an honor and a privilege that I was able to get that position, uh, thankfully, and uh, opened up the opportunities. And I I spent a lot, a lot of time learning because I, I wanted to do right by the people that were uh, working in the organization. And I advocate for them and advocate for the resources. And to do that, I had to learn it. So I said, I'm going to learn it. I feel like it's like you just start delve deep into everything, right? Not even just jump in the pool, but you stay in the deep end (laughs) until you're like the Olympic swimmer. So you're going to learn those architectures and the challenges, even if you came at it from a law perspective. I wanted to make sure I was doing right by the people that working hard and right by the nation and right by the taxpayers. And I asked a lot of questions. And it's important, I think, as a woman, too, that you technical competencies really matter. Why do you think as a woman, technical competencies matter? You were highly qualified lawyer at a Supreme Court associate. Why did you feel that technical competency matters so much as a woman? It's the only real way to validate your contributions in a way. And I'll give you the analogy of what I mean. If you read the um, biography of the first Supreme Court justice, Sandra Day O'Connor, she was nominated and they took her around to the Capitol Hill and said, you got to meet everybody so they can you know, meet you before they vote on you. And she went around all the senators. She heard them talking after um, she was, I guess, walking behind a couple of them. Oh, yeah. Did you meet her? Yeah. We met- oh, she was pretty. Oh, yeah. And, um, <laughs> and, oh, and she, was, she was funny. Oh, and she had a personality. Finally, someone says, oh, and she was intelligent. I don't think we've come much further than that. So I think, you know, once you get past the niceties, you do have to have the competencies for them to say, oh, oh, and, you know, and she's, and she's intelligent. Well, that's the reason why she's becoming the Supreme Court justice is because of her intelligence, you know, how intelligent she is. I'm laughing, crying. I'm laughing. So if anyone thinks I'm just laughing, I'm laughing, crying. I do think that there is a higher bar that you have to, uh, demonstrate, which I'll take it, you know, bring it on because, you know, I've done the homework. So I was first in my class and top 10 of law school and I can take it. So I'll take it on. But I do think you have to work extra hard. Tell me what your parents think about both of this. Did your mom work when you were growing up? My mom was a nurse, so she worked different shifts. She worked more on the weekends, really. There were seven of us, so she, my father was a chemist and my mom was a nurse, so she didn't really work every day because there's too many of us. And what do they think of, I assume all, the rest of your siblings are similar to you and your twin sister? I think four PhDs are doctor degrees, so they're all pretty driven. I need to interview your mother. What is her special sauce? What is it that she did to raise such highly educated, driven family. They weren't first generation or anything. They were here a couple of generations, um, Italian and Irish. But even my father's grandfather graduated from Yale Law School, I believe in 1890. My grandfather on my mother's side was an engineer back in 1930 from Drexel. So I think the dedication to education has been in for at least four generations now. Wow, that's incredible. Did you know Sonia Soitemeyer worked on the Yale computer system? No, I didn't know that. It was there when it was punch cards. <laughs> I believe when it. more women were in computing because they considered some of that work uh, too low level. 
So tell me about Women in Cybersecurity and your role in it. So the Women in Cybersecurity organization was started by a National Science Foundation grant, and it was focused on really encouraging females to go into the area of cybersecurity. Uh, So it was started by Dr. Shiraj out of Tennessee Tech. Then she took it after the grant was over and made it into a 501c3 organization. So NSF really holds that organization up as an exemplar of how a grant could really then turn into something longer term and sustainable, because it's not the government's interest to sustain a nonprofit indefinitely. So that organization became national. 501c3 exemption. And so when they announced that, I said, well, I want to create the first affiliate. And I got on stage in Chicago and we announced it, that we were going to be the first affiliate. And uh, we did that, the Mid-Atlantic affiliate, which covers Richmond up to Philadelphia. We then helped a number of other affiliates get stood up, including one up in Ontario, Canada, the West Coast, uh, Florida, Northern Alabama. Now there's some international ones as well. And then since that time, I, last year, I created the first industry-specific affiliate community, which was critical infrastructure. So I've now done two, two organizations. I serve as senior advisors to both. And so why would I do such a thing? Everybody wants to belong and they want to have a sense of belonging, a, a sense of purpose that they're contributing to something bigger than themselves and having a professional organization of camaraderie and a sense of community in your area of your discipline is really important. And cybersecurity being so new, and then of course, women being in the cybersecurity field, still under 25%, uh, there's very little professional organizations to really contribute, to feel like you can contribute and be a part of. So the Women in Cybersecurity is We Sis for We Sisters does provide that. So it's been a honor for me to have started those two organizations under the auspices of the national organization. I had the pleasure of attending the last local meeting that you had. And even though it was virtual, what stood out to me so much was the warm, welcoming environment. So I have been in plenty of organizations that have a similar mission (laughs) to be welcoming, to be a professional ladder, to help connect people to help increase the professionalization. But the environment that I attribute to you uh, was so warm and caring that it wanted me to switch from, I'm very focused on software, computer science, but I was like, oh my God, if this is what cybersecurity is like, yes, I want more. (laughs) Even though you're sitting there, you know, focused on defense and There's real cybersecurity attacks at all times, but it was a whole group of women who were as equally passionate as you were for their jobs, for their lives, for their service. It was a really impressive feeling. That group had a very strong charisma and passion. So I want to compliment you for not only creating the group and extending the group, but setting a culture that will be impactful. You know, it's like a magnet. You want to be a a part of something that you feel that there's energy there. And there's so much positive energy and support and warmth that it's a natural. I'm a big reader. Clearly, you're a huge reader as well. What is a book or books that have been very impactful to you in your personal or professional life? 
The two books that I generally recommend to people if they're interested is The Cyber Effect by Dr. Mary Aiken. She's Irish. She's phenomenal. Her book has now been translated into, I think, 60 different languages, primarily talking about once people get on keyboard, how it actually changes their personality in a detrimental way. So that's called The Cyber Effect. The other book is Code Girls by Liza Mundy. I've had the opportunity to meet Liza. She is phenomenal as well as an individual and as well as a researcher and a writer. And then I also read a lot of law reviews, actually, uh, legal journals, space law journals. I'm interested in the space area. And But then I also read um, books about women. I'm reading up a book about one of the individuals that was involved with Fatima back in 1917, as well as the founder of the Little Sisters of the Poor. She's now a saint, St. Jean Jugon, out of France. So reading about their lives and how they made an impact and then how what they did in their later years, they're phenomenal stories about how they just handled adversity during different times of their lives, but then continued to make these incredible impacts on society. So, uh, you know, I enjoy reading about different things. <laughs> Do you have a, a number of books that you try to get through each year? Or is it just like a natural, there's always a pile of books and you're reading? I actually read a lot, a lot of reports. If there's a report that comes out, different organizations do reports on threat analysis. I read a lot of reports because I'd like to know what the trends are. I often am interviewed and questioned about what's the trend here, what's the trend there, where do we see the next emerging threat? So I do spend a lot of time, you know, reading. It could be a fire report. It could be a man, you know, the Mandiant report. It could be a government report. It could be a private sector report. It could be an ISSC squared report. Just to get a sense of where are the trends, where do they see the future vulnerabilities, where do we think the next big thing in industry is going to be, I try just to keep up with what's going on. So I don't have a set deadline or set amount for myself. But if you looked around my room, you would see piles of paper and they all have a purpose for contributing to this body of knowledge that I kind of have in my head. Do you use an RSS feed or a tool like Feedly to filter and pick out the articles for you? How do you go about picking? I do a lot of Google alerts. I have multiple Google alerts set up. So I'll have that to take a look at. So I would just recommend if someone's interested in learning about something, put a Google alert on it so then you can see the different trends that come up, what companies end up going into a particular area where regional interests are or a specific domain that you're interested in or a particular technology. Then as you get more, you'll start seeing more in that space. And then you do kind of develop an area of expertise that you may not have had just by the nature of investing, you know, the time and energy to read. General Nakasone spoke to the um, midshipman at a particular event and somebody asked him, what do you need to do to be a leader? And his answer was read, read, read. I found that to be extremely powerful that he was telling these youngsters, they were 18 and 19 and 20, that that's what you need to do. And I think it's a compounding effect. So it's like when you're young, you don't see necessarily, but then over time and you keep reading more or similar to you, you're doing these additional readings in your free time or training and self-education in your free time. And it just keeps compounding because you keep spending this hours and this knowledge to gain further knowledge. Right. So, for example, Internet of Things, there was a cybersecurity statute got passed, I think, January 2nd this year. I was on a panel 
on the international Internet of Things legislation around the world. So that was fascinating to get myself prepared for that because I could hear what England has done, Canada was doing, Australia was doing. How does that compare to our model? How does that translate to our society? So doing the comparative analysis, you can't do any comparative analysis if you don't have the understanding of the basics to begin with. So you have to, you really do have to layer information upon other information to actually make that assessment. So outside of reading, what is advice that you typically give for younger professionals? Network. Yeah. You have to just network and ask for informational interviews, ask to shadow somebody, ask what their job is like, ask people what they studied, what their paths were, because there's so many fascinating things in this country, so many things that you can do. They're all so exciting. I mean, I love the export control arena. I loved the acquisition arena. I just loved it. I just invested in so much in learning it while I was in those jobs. And uh, there's so many things that you can make a lifetime out of. So just find what you're interested in, find your passion, meet people that are doing it and just network as much as you can because you never know. You could be end up crossing paths with them 10 years down the road or using them as a colleague or using them as a consultant or hiring them or something like that. So networking and knowing who the experts are in the field and tracking them and seeing what they're working on, seeing how that's then later reflected into policy decisions, how it's reflected into maybe different trends across the country, why something's coming in and something's going out, what the risks are, what the benefits are, you know, what the investments areas are. So then all those things kind of come together in terms of understanding, you know, the field. Before we go, tell me something about yourself that would surprise us. <laughs> I like to paint. You do? What kind of painting? Usually just acrylic. You know, acrylics are easy because they're, they're a little bit easier to clean and all. But what style, like impressionistic, modern? <laughs> no. Candesky? Just... Like, no, are, no. are you throwing paint? <laughs> no. Point a list. <laughs> I could see you doing a point list. Yeah. I'm going to send you one to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I would actually probably do one of those, but um, <laughs> I do more arts and crafts types of painting and stuff. We have a little studio that we have, but um, my daughter uh, enjoys it too. Yeah. I just enjoy it. That's great. They say the future is about not information, but about creativity as we move forward into artificial intelligence and a big machine can synthesize things faster than we can and perhaps even make the predictions that with greater accuracy, right? The future demands the ability to be creative and to pivot and to understand where to go. And so I think that's great to have that time to think and act differently. I think from my perspective, sitting in a tech role my whole life, one of the biggest things hurting the tech and the future of tech is an overemphasis on pure tech as the number one evaluator or validity of, say, effectiveness, when really it requires a synthesis of information and ability to work with others and creativity versus a strict focus on technical skills and just the ability to understand, say, or to pass a test where it's really the application of it afterwards, taking that knowledge and building the system or creating the policy. Right. Using your critical thinking skills and your creativity skills to see the future. 
some of these algorithms that are risk-based algorithms end up making decisions that there may have been different calculuses involved if the human being was making those decisions based upon the factors of real impacts versus some of these algorithms that are out there, which are helpful, but they only get you so far. I think there's always a need for the human involvement, human review, understanding, and the critical thinking piece that makes us so different and celebrated. I mean, what's what makes us so exciting as human beings is what we have to offer and in terms of that creativity and that synthesis and just the talent. You know, everybody has amazing talents. And it's the combination of those talents that make human beings extraordinary. I cannot wait. We'll save this for the next podcast. I cannot wait to talk to you about technology, cybersecurity, and artificial intelligence ethics. (laughs) And, you know, as we're building these more powerful connected systems, where is that human review? Where is the human in the loop, right? So we'll save that for next time. I'll just leave it as a teaser. Thank you so much for taking part of your evening to give to others, to give to me. I appreciate it. I always enjoy talking to you. I'm glad I can make you laugh sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that too. (laughs) It is such a pleasure to know you and you are such an inspiration to me. I only hope to make a similar impact as you have done so far. So thanks for showing the way and continuing to be so active. Thank you. It's a team sport. So we all have something to contribute. So thank you for everything that you're doing. And thanks to your listeners for everything that they do to make the cybersecurity field uh, an inclusive environment where we're all working together. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Please be sure to share it with friends and family. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn under the Outspoken Podcast. Thanks again, and chin up, heads up, eyes forward.